Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm here today with Professor Douglas R. Edgerton. We're going to be discussing his uh, recently published book out this year by Basic Books, Heirs of an Ottered Name, The Decline of the Adams Family and the Rise of Modern America. He is professor of history at Lemoyne College. Welcome to the show, Professor Edgerton. Thanks. Good to be here. So let's just get to it. What prompted you to study how and why John and Abigail Adams' grandchildren and great-grandchildren witnessed, and according to you, frequently orchestrated, their families' decline and fall? Well, this, the book was a was a somewhat of a departure for me. Um my, my earlier writing, this is my eighth solo book, and, and most of my writings have been about race in early Americans, like rebelliousness. Um, but, but every book I write tends to lead to the next. And, and so my last book, um, which was called Thunder at the Gates, about the three black pioneering uh, regiments in Massachusetts, the 54th, the 55th, and 5th Cavalry, um, I covered 14 soldiers, uh, 10 black soldiers, four white officers, and, and one of the white officers was Charles Francis Adams Jr., the, the grandson of John Quincy. Um, well, I found him to be a fascinating person. Uh, and, and like many of the Adamses, he's fascinating because he's on the right side of history. Uh, he, he volunteered to lead a, a Black Cavalry Regiment, the first, in fact, ever Black Cavalry Regiment in the U.S. Um, but was so dislikable. Um, he, he once was writing to his brother Henry, and he says, nothing, nothing tells like being contemptuous. And, and he seems to kind of live his life by that nexus. Um, just kind of surly, unhappy person in general. And um, so, as I, so again, he was just one of 14 people I followed in the last book. And I thought, you know, these people, they, they really deserve their own story. And, and, um, and it's because they do reach the presidency, John and John Quincy, um, get all the attention in, in the last few years, uh, two big biographies of John Quincy and, and uh, good friends of mine recently published a great book on, on the presidencies of John and John Quincy. Um, but but nothing on, on the third and fourth generation. Henry, of course, remains fairly famous uh, because of, of his writings, his novels, his, his uh, works of history. Um, but Charles Francis Sr. has been somewhat forgotten. He pops up in diplomatic histories in the Civil War because, of course, he's Lincoln's uh, ambassador for seven years to, to Great Britain. Uh, but certainly they don't get the kind of attention that, uh, that, that the earlier Adamses do. Uh, and, and so I thought, you know, here's another story that just has not really been told that that, uh, deserves to be told. So what circumstances culminated in Charles Francis Adams, who who is the grandson to John and Abigail Adams, becoming the quote-unquote last of his generation? Please discuss his childhood in Russia and France with his his parents, his difficulties at Harvard, his courtship of Abby Brooks, the suicide of his brother, uh, George, and the alcoholism that contributed to the death of his brother, John Jr., well, he's he's the the third son, and of course, for an Adams, um, the, the first son is always the one who goes on to be the next 
statesman and President Adams. And, and so he has two older brothers uh, by his parents, John Quincy and Louisa. Um, George Washington Adams, named, of course, for the former president. And, and by the way, that raised eyebrows in, in the Adams household because you name the oldest child after the father. And, and so when, when uh, John Quincy decided to name his oldest son, George, um, after the late president, both both John and, and Abigail were, were fairly put out. Um, so then the second boy became John Adams II. Um, so Charles Francis comes along um, he's six years younger than his oldest brother. And um, in 1809, John Quincy, who had been a Federalist, but he'd been literally thrown out of the party for endorsing the Louisiana Purchase, um, was tapped by incoming President James Madison to be the first ever American minister. And then today call them ambassador, but at the time they're called ministers. Um, to Russia. Um, and, and so uh, Grandma, Abigail, simply announces the oldest boys will stay with her in Quincy, um, and, the, and that um, John Quincy could take the youngest child, who's only four at the time, um, and, and go to Russia. Um, so he's raised essentially as an only child, um, and he's raised in Europe between um, uh, 1809 to 1817, but first Russia, then he's actually in Paris during the bottom parts of 100 days when he returns to power, um, and then finally for two years in London, uh, well, John Quincy becomes the, the, the second Adams to be the minister to Great Britain. Um, so he has this amazing childhood. Uh, and, and I mean, here he is talking to the czar, Alexander, traveling all around Europe. He sees Bonaparte speaking as a child um, and, and gets the, the full of attention of his parents. And then he has a sister, Louisa Catherine, who's born in Russia, and she dies at the age of one. And at that point, he and, and his mother, Louisa, become um, very, very close. Um, and and But the, the sad part of this kind of family dynamic is that, that as a boy, Charles Francis describes his father, uh, John Quincy, as being, as being cold and unfeeling. Um, and then his son, Charles Francis Jr., later on describes him as being cold and unfeeling. So this is kind of distant parental dynamic that, that the Adams men can't seem to, uh, can't seem to break. But, but he has all this time to be the only child. Um, his father tutors him at home. And that's actually a fairly funny story. Um, he's doing five hours a day. And again, Charles Francis is, is five at the time. He's just a boy. Um, so, so John Quincy is, is grilling him, uh, Latin, <laughs> German, French. Um, and they take him to the court and the czar makes the mistake of saying, what a bright child. And so at that point, John Quincy decides that Charles Francis is, is a genius. Um, and then piles on more language and, and geometry and you know, six, seven hours a day. And, and finally, even Abigail writes back from Massachusetts and says, you know, John, maybe kind of pull back on this a little bit. Um, and as a child, Charles Francis discovers he could irritate his father by willfully mispronouncing words that he's learning in, in French or whatever language, Russian. Um, and, and Charles, uh, John Quincy writes in his diary, um, he's doing this on purpose. He, he's mispronouncing the words just to annoy me. Um, so he does have this you know, just amazing childhood, which is why then he goes back to London as like his ambassador. Um, he's, he's uniquely prepared. Uh, abroad, and at one point, actually goes to to visit the house that, that he lived in in London when he was a boy with his with his parents. Now as an adult with his own children, um, so so he has in a time in which most Americans don't leave the state of their birth or maybe move one state west. Um, for for a boy who's been all over Europe, um, he, he comes back and prepares to to study at Harvard. And uh, you know he just he, he just has a childhood like nobody else, a preparation for foreign service like nobody else. So what were, in turn, the dynamics of Charles Francis's children, especially Louisa, Charles Francis Jr., and John Quincy Jr., and Henry? And how did Charles Francis come to engage with the anti-slavery movement 
prior to the death of his father, John Quincy Adams. In your response, please try to address at least three of the following. The uh, Prigg decision, the first Massachusetts personal liberty law, uh, the repeal of a miscegenation law, his support for a resolution to overturn the Three-Fifths Clause, his Fourth of July oration, and or the consequences of his daily Whig editorials. Sure. Um, well, in the late 1830s, and there's, there's a real ambivalence in the third and fourth generations about do they want to pursue national greatness? Uh, they, they have money enough, and, and all the Adams men uh, marry into some, some cash, and so they don't have to pursue the kind of law cases that, that most people pursue. Um, he has his hobbies. He loves to <clears throat> loves to collect ancient coins, or, you know, Roman coins. I mean, he's got this kind of sort of low level law practice, but of course, he's an Adams. Um, and one way to think about this is the Adamses at the time are not are not the first American political dynasty. Um, they're the only political dynasty uh, of all the early American presidents. Um, only John Adams and Martin Van Buren have sons to adulthood. And, and so every time there's an opening for you know, dog catcher in Massachusetts. Some editorial will always say, well, it's got to be an Adams. So, so just kind of putting around the house um, is not going to be okay. And Charles Francis Sr. Uh, marries Abigail Brown Brooks, and that comes with a lot of money. Her father's a, a shipping magnet. Um, she's one of three three daughters, and um, and all the daughters get, get a huge dowry to buy a house with. One of her, his brother-in-laws is Edward Everett, Secretary of State. Um, and so he buys, he buys with his wife's house, uh, money on Beacon Hill, uh, the house on Beacon Hill. Um, and, and Martin just wants to just stay there and do that. But again, the pressure from, from society, the pressure from his father, who's still alive until 1848, um, is enormous. And, and so he's approached in, in 1839 to run for the state house. And again, as an Adams, if he says, yes, it's a done deal. Um, and he declines. Um, and dad, John Quincy, who's now back in Congress in Washington, writes him and says, we, we don't turn this sort of thing down. You're an Adams, you must do this. And so the following year, he does agree to run, and he serves, in those days, it's a, a one-year term in the State House. So he serves three terms in the State House and then two terms in the State Senate. And, and that's where you see his, his early anti-slavery progressivism, but also progressivism that is, um, I don't want to say tainted, it's probably the wrong word, but, but um, laden with um, pragmatic concerns, legalistic concerns. Um, and so there's two things he really wants to address as a state assemblyman. And first is fugitive slave trade, which is a fugitive slave law, pardon me, which is um, really heating up. And so to go back, 1793, uh, Congress passes the first ever Fugitive Slave Act uh, based on the Constitution. Article 4, Section 2 makes it very clear that, that if you are, um, it doesn't use the term slave, it says held in labor. If you are held in labor in one state, escaping into another, um, you are not free. They can bring you back. Um, so, so a slave catcher named Prigg is arrested in Pennsylvania, um, and the question then goes to the, the, the highest court in the land: uh, is the is the Fugitive Slave Act constitutional? And, and of course, it is. I mean, again, there it is in the Constitution. <clears throat> so the court upholds the law, um, and petitions come flooding into the state assembly. And of course, uh, the, the way Lloyd Garrison point of view, and he's in Boston at the time, is, is that moral people must disobey immoral laws. So, so the hardcore abolitionist position is, I don't care what the court said. We simply are not going to obey this law. And if a fugitive arrives at our door, we'll, we'll protect that person. We'll help them get across the border into Canada. Um, we, we simply will not you know, obey this decision. And, and so as an Adams, as an attorney, third generation attorney, um, he needs to find what he thinks is kind of um, a decent middle ground. And so he, he writes a state 
law that, that does pass um, that holds, yes, yes, he concedes the point that, that the law is, in fact, constitutional. <clears throat> but he says only the federal law has been upheld. Um, and so, therefore, state officials, mayors, governors, whatever, um, are not only not obligated to, to carry out the law, but, in fact, they are banned from carrying out the law. So, so essentially, if you are a local sheriff um, and a fugitive slave goes running right by you, um, you are, in fact, compelled to do exactly nothing. He goes on to say even if um, um, a slave is captured by a federal marshal um, and, and you have a local jail, your jail may not be used. So, so it's, it's a very legalistic, very smart position, but legalistic um, in that it doesn't kind of really take into concern the humanity. Of a you know a Harriet Tubman, a Frederick Douglass, uh, who, who's you know in fact a runaway. Um, so so Adams always tries to find for his entire life uh, this kind of common ground, this legal ground um, between the desires of white Southerners who simply want their expensive property returned, no questions asked, um, and and then evangelicals, Garrisonians in the North who argue that that going back to to the earliest moments of Christianity, that a Christian man does not does not obey immoral law. So Adams always tries to find the middle, and, and typically does. Um, and of course, states had been passing what were called personal liberty laws, uh, which allowed for some small modicum of, of defense um, for people being accused of, of being runaways. Um, I should point out here that, that a runaway under the law, the 1793 law, the more draconian 1850 law, they're not accused of any crime. Um, they, they simply are errant chattel, like a cow that has wandered off the plantation. So in theory, when someone is accused of being a runaway slave in Boston, they're, they're not supposed to be accorded any kind of protection, any kind of attorney. So so legalistically, Adams always does want to have you know some kind of protection for, for runaways. And so you know, certainly one should one should admire him for that. Um, the other thing he does, which is really interesting, but again tells you a lot about his kind of Middle ground point of view is that that there's a series of cases in the 1780s that, that collapsed slavery in Massachusetts. It, it had never been really important anyway. Um, at the time of the revolution, Massachusetts was, was only 4% uh, black and enslaved. And, and most slaves in Massachusetts, like Christmas addicts, were urbanites, dock workers, mariners. Um, so, so slavery collapses thanks to two interlocking court cases um, back during the revolutionary era. But at the same time, in 1786, uh, the state passes a law banning intermarriage between whites, Native Americans, and African Americans. Um, and Adams regards that as, he calls it the last vestige of, of slavery in Massachusetts. So he's determined to, to eradicate this law. Um, and at the time, it, it's a real hot potato. It's like, it's like uh, same-sex marriage was 20 years ago. No one wants to go near it politically. Um, and he does. Um, and, and he's a Whig. Neither uh, the Whigs nor the Democrats of the state will, will kind of go near this. He spends three years putting this coalition together. And, and one year it passes the House, and the next year fails in the Senate, and vice versa. Um, so finally, <clears throat> 1843, he gets it passed uh, by a pretty close vote of 142 to 126. And he writes that night in his diary, today I, I killed the, the last vestige of slavery in Massachusetts. And then he says, um, <clears throat> although nothing can be more disagreeable to me than the consideration of the subject which it involves. So in other words, he wants to kill the law because he regards it as a bad law. And again, one can admire him for this. He wants all Americans to be equal under the law. Um, but the idea of, of blacks and whites actually 
getting married, he finds morally repugnant to the point that he says that in, in his diary. And, and so for Adams, and this is kind of the first inkling that, that he and his sons all turn against Reconstruction in the years after the Civil War. Um, for them, it's always about legality. It's never about humanity. Uh, and when he says, I hope it doesn't happen, well, of course it's happening. He just doesn't know any black dock workers in Massachusetts or runaway slaves or, or Irish immigrant women who are inclined to marry black dog workers. Um, so for him, it's always about legal theory, never about the actual people uh, involved. And so for me, this is kind of the first hint that, that you know, after the Civil War, when so-called radical Republicans, who are frankly not all that radical, um, are kind of pushing the Constitution to make it a bit more expansive, and Adams pushes back and says, you know, it, it's what it was in 1861, it doesn't change. Um, it's never about the people. He never mentions in his diary, for example, in the years after the Civil War, tens of thousands of Black activists are being brutalized, assassinated, removed. Um, it's always, well, what about the Constitution and the law? So, they, so you see this here as, as a young man. So, you know, again, th- this was the kind of balanced problem I had in writing about all these these Adamses. Um, they're on the right side of history. He spent years putting together this coalition to kill a, a bad racist law. But then the idea of people actually doing it, he finds repugnant. So what ultimately prompted Charles Francis to help formulate the Free Soil Party platform as a vice presidential candidate, and then then he joined the Republican Party? Also, what happened to Charles Francis Jr., John Quincy Jr., and Henry at Harvard? I know they met uh, uh, Rooney Lee, uh, Robert Lee's son. And what became of uh, Louisa? In your response, please try to discuss at least three of the following. The uh, speech that made his career, the specter of Adams' family enmity for Martin Van Buren, Whig and Democratic Party backlash, his opposition to the 1850 reauthorized Fugitive Slave Act, the death of his mother and editing of his grandfather's papers, and of course his friendship with Charles Sumner. <laughs> okay, that's quite a lot. Um, let's talk about, about uh, Charles Just Francis. Three. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, let's start with the, the, the Free Soil campaign, because that, that's, of course, the, the campaign that makes uh, Charles Francis a national figure. Um, so, so at the same time he's serving in, in the State House, the big national issue um, is whether the Republic of Texas, which has been an independent republic since 1836, um, will join the United States. And, and for especially Whigs in, in New England, um, the idea that Texas will come in. It's such a huge piece of land, and, and, and there's even talk that it'll come in as, as two or three states, meaning four or six pro-slavery Democratic senators, a whole lot of congressmen down the road. Um, and, of course, it's the first time that, that, that slave sold had come in since Missouri uh, in 1820 and 21. So, so for Whigs in the North, like, like, like uh, John Quincy, still in, in Congress, and Charles Francis, um, Texas is an indication that the country is just galloping in the wrong Direction and 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 so in in Congress, John Quincy um, is trying to keep it out, and in in the State House, um, Charles Francis is is very critical of the idea. And then, of course, in the wake of, of annexation, forty five comes the war with Mexico, forty six to forty eight, and all of a sudden it's not just Texas. There's five hundred thousand square miles now of the Mexican session in the American Southwest, uh, what was then a vast territory, New Mexico and today Arizona, um, California. Colorado, Utah, Nevada, um, this huge chunk of land, and, and all of it exactly due west of the slaveholding south. And in the 19th century, Americans tend to move west along kind of neat little geothermal lines. So it's almost no one goes from Maine to, to Phoenix, Arizona. 
Um, and of course, the South wants um, not just Texas, but but the Southwest um, for political parity in the Senate. They, they realize, of course, they've been outgunned for years in the House where population matters. Um, and they're talking about, about cotton production in New Mexico and what's now Arizona, and also, of course, mining, uh, copper mining in um, in what's now Arizona. So um, the Free Soul Party is, is the first ever kind of militant anti-slavery party. It just sort of emerges spontaneously in 1848. Um, and it's not an abolition party. Uh, it simply is a, a keep slavery out of the West party. Um, and, you know, then or now, most third parties are, are kind of a protest party. I'll, I'll vote for Ralph Nader in Florida. Uh, but you don't think he's going to win. Um, these guys actually were playing to win. So, so they nominate for, and they meet in Buffalo, and Adams is there at the convention. Um, they nominate former President Martin Van Buren of New York. Um, New York at the time, I mean, still is a big electoral prize. At the time, it was the big electoral prize. Um, and Van Buren, a Democrat, had been critical of the annexation of Texas, and so he had kind of free soil credentials uh, to, to back him up. Um, and, of course, again, if you want to win, you, you run you know, the biggest name you can get, and, and Van Buren is the biggest name they can get. Um, and he's not in Buffalo at the convention, but Adams is, and he realizes that he's going to be nominated. And so he actually flees the meeting at a church. He flees the church because he doesn't want it to look like he's you know, campaigning or lobbying for the job. Um, and of course, the reason he gets the nomination is because his father had just died that February, um, died you know, literally in Congress. He falls out of his chair from having a, a second stroke. Um and, and so he's, he's essentially chosen because he is Adams, not so much because of the anti-slavery work he's done that decade in Massachusetts. I mean, imagine today, you know, a major political party nominates for the second spot uh, somebody who's done five years in, in the state assembly. It's just not going to happen. And so, in fact, when Adams is in Buffalo for the convention, he's wearing black mourning clothes. He has a black armband in, in memory of his father. So essentially, he's, he's nominated to honor now, the deceased John Quincy is if almost like John Quincy was sort of still there. Um, and, of course, it makes him famous virtually overnight. Um, one of the sources I used for the book, of course, are newspapers. I mean, all across the country, you know, he's hailed as being not – they don't say Charles Francis Adams. They say the son of John Quincy, comma, Charles Francis is now the, the vice presidential nominee. And um, it's awkward, obviously. Of course, this is the 19th century, and so one does not actually campaign. Um, and, and so Adams and Van Buren don't campaign. They never meet one another. Um, so it's not today where you have to appear at rallies with, with the person you're running with. Um, but of course, John Quincy and Martin Van Buren had been for decades um, enemies. And so to have Charles Francis running as the running mate of, of the Democrat that the Whigs just really hated and despised um, was was kind of a problem. And, and, and of course, uh, both John Quincy and Charles Francis, as a young journalist, had been very critical of Van Buren. So, so um, parties loyal to the regular Whig nominee, Zachary Taylor, a Louisiana slaveholder, had a field day uh, running old editorials that, that, that both the Adamses had said about, about Martin Van Buren. Um, and of course, they did not win, but, the, but they actually, for the third party campaign, they, they did better than any previous kind of fringe party had ever done. And, and so the free soul movement then does evolve into the Republican party in the 1850s after the country is again, astonished by, by Kansas, Nebraska, which is now going to allow slavery um, above the old Missouri compromise line in the Midwest. So in many ways, it, it's, it's not just a one-off campaign, but it is essentially the, 
um, the forerunner of the Republicans, and then Charles Francis does become one of the early adherents. He's kind of thrown out of the Whig Party for just being so anti-slavery. Um, a lot of Whigs in Massachusetts own factories, cotton textiles, so they're getting their product from the slave South, and so they're really inclined to be um, kind of pull their punches uh, when it comes to to criticizing the South, and Adams is not. So he he's actually becomes a Republican before um, Lincoln or Seward. Uh, quit the Whig Party and become a Republican. So he's a very early adherent and an architect of the party. Okay, you asked about the kids. Shall I come up talk about the kids? Like Louise? Okay. Or do you want me... Uh, <laughs> I should have been keeping notes on what, what other issues were. Um, well, let me try it this way. Including the, their, their, time, their time at Harvard, including Meaty uh, Rooney. Oh, okay. Um, of course, all Adamses go go to Harvard. Um, they have since since John Adams talked his way in um, as a young man. And um, when when Charles Francis Senior gets back gets back from England after after eight years abroad, he, he's still very very young. Um, and and it simply is a given that he will attend Harvard. In, in those days, people do attend a bit younger than than today, where you're eighteen, nineteen when you're a first year student. Um, but he's so much younger. He just feels lonely and, and alone and um, no drinking laws um, in the 19th century. And so even as a very young student, Charles Francis finds himself probably drinking a bit too much, he admits, uh, to his own diary. Um, and that and that is a family issue. There's a lot of alcoholism uh, in, in, the, in the family. Um, at the same time, um, um, his sons, oh, so he decides actually he's so unhappy there, he wants to transfer to Yale. Um, and, and if not that, he just wants to drop out. Um, and, and so his father writes him and says, you know, we don't go to lesser schools like Yale. We are all Harvard men. Um, and if you drop out, it's quite likely that, that you will um, end up in perdition. Um, you'll sort of be doomed to hell. Um, and so Charles Francis Sr. does kind of pull it back together and, and, and does finish Harvard. But but um, he's very, very young and then and then drifts for a time. Um, his father, of course, is in Washington. Uh, this is b- before his time in Congress. And, and so Charles Francis comes to, to live in Washington, um, where he takes up with a mistress. Um, and, and of course, all Adamses are notorious diarists. And so he mentions the mistress. He never names her. Probably working class woman in, in Washington. Um, and so has he, he calls her a mistress. Um, and then it's uh, Abigail, Abby, Brown Brooks, and, and just falls head over heels in love with her. Um, and again, she's wealthy and well-connected, but, but beautiful and, and sweet. Um, and, and virtually the moment he meets her, he poses to her and her response is, <laughs> not, what? Not quite yet. Um, and in fact, he, he bungles the, the proposal so badly. She thinks he's, he's asking if they could just see each other more than, than they are. And he's actually asking to see her for life. Um, and, and they're both still fairly young. And, and um, her father, again, who's rich, um, wants them to be engaged for a very long engagement, two, three, four years, and, and Charles Francis just can't wait. Um, but but not to his credit, he continues to see his his mistress, and, and he finally decides the time has come to break it off, and he says in his diary, a man is a fool to have a mistress, but, but even as he's courting Abby, he still is seeing his lady friend on the side. So he, he may not be the most um, perfect <laughs> suitor. Um, but 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 the the, the tradition goes to Harvard in his family, and so of course all of his sons um, go to Harvard, and and oddly um, his son Henry, who's his fourth child, 
uh, becomes very good friends uh, with Rooney Lee. Rooney Lee is, is the son of, of Robert E. Lee. And, and um, Rooney is handsome and, and he's popular. And, you know, we tend to think of, of his father, Robert Lee, as this kind of old gray man. But, but you know, the, the war gives Robert Lee you know, a heart attack and, and breaks his health. He's, he's actually, you know, at the dawn of the war, still a pretty youngish, good-looking man. And, and apparently Rooney was, was just very popular, but but just dumb as a rock. Um, and, and Henry kept helping him with his papers. And, and of course, Henry is five foot one. Rooney's very tall, handsome. And um, and finally, Rooney just realizes he, he can't stay at Harvard anymore. And his father gets him a position um, in the army. Um, and Henry even has to write his, his, his resignation letter from Harvard because that's kind of beyond Rooney's abilities. Um, but because of that friendship, uh, even during the secession months, um, Henry meets, has dinner at, at the uh, the Custis estate, today, of course, Arlington Cemetery, um, and then stays in touch with Rooney and, and uh, sees him on occasion after after the war. So it's, it's kind of a very odd North and South friendship. Um, the child of Charles Francis, who is, of course, the most tragic, is the eldest, and that, that's Louisa. Um, and again, to be the first child of, of an Adams, in this case, the first child of Charles Francis and Abby, um, would mean great things. That 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 he, uh, if he was Lou Lewis, uh, would be next in line to be senator, congressman, attorney, attend Harvard, of course. Um, but Louisa is is not Lou, um, and according to her brothers, especially Henry, uh, Louisa is is far and away just the smartest of their generation. Um, but but. That public life is is not going to be um, her role. I, I could never tell whether I should feel annoyed with Louisa or sorry for Louisa, or or both. Um, sorry in that um, she's brilliant, um, and there's not going to be a Harvard in her future. But 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 neither does she attempt the kind of roles during the war that that other elite women perform. Um, Robert Gould Shaw, the colonel of the Black Regiment 54th, his mother raises money during the war, you know, sews uniforms, sends, sends care packages, and, and Louisa, who marries unhappily, uh, she marries a, a wealthy attorney and doctor, um, she sort of wanders uh, around Europe, and um, she has a miscarriage, which, which apparently damages her ability to, to um, have any more children, so she never does, and of course, that, that's also part of the problem. To be an elite woman in the 19th century, wife and mother uh, are, are your designated roles, and she can be wife but not mother. Uh, we don't really know much about the the marriage, although it's a disaster. Uh, she, she comes home from the honeymoon and tries to move back in with her parents. And they reconcile, they wander off to Europe, and she comes back and she's unhappy, and she's always unwell. And, and at one point, Charles Francis says in his diary, you know, I, I think her illness is, is not physical, it's psychological. So, so again, part of me feels that, that the world was simply unfair to her. Were she born today to the kind of family that she comes from, she would be, you know, not just not just writing speeches, but running for the presidency. Um, but so many women, Dorothea Dix, the Boston school teacher who organizes the nursing corps for Lincoln, um, there's so much she could do as an Adams during the war. She has a brother who's serving. She has a father who is ambassador to England. She has another brother, Henry, who is, is the ambassador's secretary. Um, and and she um, she drifts. And, and finally, in 1870, she's outside of Florence, Italy, um, driving a carriage too fast and rolls the carriage and it crushes. 
um, her, her leg. And the doctors want to take it off and she refuses. And um, Henry gets there before she dies um, and she dies of, uh, of gangrene um, and is buried in the, the English cemetery in, in Florence. Um, they, they lost her grave for a time. The, the, the graveyard is in, in terrible condition, um, but it, it fell over and they've now found it. So I, I should, uh, took a picture of this kind of piece of marble lying on the ground. Um, so she's, she's kind of the tragic, the tragic child of that fourth generation. So given his election as Massachusetts's third district representative, his 1860 so-called classic free sale disquisition and his joint uh, campaign with Seward for Abraham Lincoln after the Republican National Convention, why did Charles Francis attempt to compromise with secessionists by entertaining the repeal of personal liberty laws and supporting the doctrine of popular sovereignty for slave and free soil? And in your response, Please address the personal and professional backlash, uh, per- personal and professional consequences of Republican backlash, and then uh, three of the following: uh, Charles Francis's speech on possible anti-slavery amendments, his perceptions of the Lincolns, and then also maybe Henry's studies in Berlin with Louisa, as well as John Quincy Jr.'s and Charles Francis Jr.'s careers. <sighs> okay, <laughs> again, again, quite a lot. Um, so, so just three of the following. You can limit it. To three. I'll, I'll start. With, I'll start with Congress because that that, that again is very telling. So, um, after after the Free Soil campaign, uh, Charles Francis sort of went back to his old pursuits for most of the eighteen fifties. Um, went back to his his coin collection and and managing the family's estates, which were considerable. Um, and he was pretty good at it. He, he made a lot of money uh, investing, buying land, selling land. Um, he had a real chance in 1851 for national greatness. Um, in those days, of course, senators were chosen by state assemblies, and, and uh, the, the, the Whig senator, a guy named Robert Rantoul, uh, was unwell and was dying. Um, and, and so friends and anti-slavery reformers were pushing for Adams to, to be replaced, but to replace him um, in, in the U.S. Senate. <clears throat> and he was very, very interested in doing so. But, but all the Adamses adhered to an earlier American political culture. So he says at one point to his diary, I, basically, I would love to be the senator, uh, but I can't appear to be lobbying for it. In fact, essentially, the legislature has to choose me and w- without any lifting a finger on, on my part, and then, and then I'll, I'll be the senator. But only if it's popular claim, you know, vast majority choose him. Um, and by the 1850s, um, most American politicians are, are uncomfortable or tired of that, that kind of Hamlet pose. Um, and again, that, that's the way you know, John Adams does not lobby to become vice president. He, he simply is chosen as vice president and, and, and inherits the mantle of office. And that, that's what Charles Francis is looking for, is basically them to come to him. Um, and he'd been editing a paper, um, and, and he owned it because he had money. And so one of his longtime friends and associates, who's also working on the paper but didn't have that kind of that kind of cash to, to buy in, uh, was Charles Sumner, who's a little bit younger um, than, than Adams. And so Adams is kind of the senior partner of this this Massachusetts anti-slavery you know, uh, duo. Um, and at one point, Adams says to Sumner, "Well, you know, you should do it." And he's just almost kind of dismissive, like you're like, you're the kind of person willing to sort of you know lobby for this job. And Sumner says, you're the senior partner. You know, you should, this is, this is your, this is your seat. And Adams won't lift a finger. And so finally, Sumner says, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have it. Um, and so, of course, Sumner then serves in the Senate till his death. Um, and Adams just lifted a finger. 
he would have been Senator Charles Francis Adams and possibly would have been the front runner um, in 1860 for the presidential nomination, not, not, William, not William Seward. So he sits out most of the 1850s and finally does agree to run for uh, Congress in 1858 and, and easily, of course, wins. Adams never really got Lincoln. He'd become very close to Seward as, as kind of a family friend. Uh, when Seward lost the nomination, uh, essentially the first person he came to see was Charles Francis, and they had this, this kind of sad dinner. Um, and like a lot of people in New England who didn't really know much about Lincoln, Lincoln seemed to be this, this kind of tall, lanky, inexperienced frontiersman with, with you know, bad suit and, and, and sort of bad manners. And, and, and rarely, Adams never really changed his position on, on Lincoln very much. Um, he would get, he would get you know, a formal statement that Lincoln had made at Gettysburg Address, second inaugural Thanksgiving statement. And he'd always say, that was pretty good. So, so it couldn't really have been Lincoln. It must have been Seward who wrote that. And of course, it was, it was Lincoln. Um, so their congressman, Adams, was in, in the midst of, of Southern secession. Um, and th- this this was a position he took that, that cost him his friendship with with Charles Sumner. So um, there's both the House and Senate committee trying to find some kind of compromise or really conciliatory package to to keep the South in. Um, and Adams finds himself on the House committee. It's called the Committee of Thirty Three because there's thirty three people on this committee. Um, and of course, the Lower South is already out the door. The South Carolina is out the door in, in December 1860. So so the hope for people like like Adams is to hold the Upper South, Virginia, Tennessee, Maryland, um, in place with a package of concessions. And the Lower South will then realize in a year's time that, that they simply can't survive without without Maryland, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee. They'll come back. So he does try to to <clears throat> make the kind of concessions that, that will you know, win the, the Upper South back. And, and again, he finds himself in this kind of moderate position where He's not giving enough uh, for those like, like, like John J. Crittenden, who's orchestrating the, the Senate package um, to the South. But he's also giving more than, than Sumner believes they should get. And so he does two things. Uh, they get some really hot water with his constituents. And, of course, I was reading his correspondence. And he gets some very angry hate mail uh, from his voters. Um, one is he scales way back on his longstanding support for personal liberty laws. And, and Seward especially is pushing this one really hard. Um Will kind of remove any of these laws and essentially offer any protection to to runaway slaves or, or people allegedly who, who have run away um, in the North, and that causes some headaches. But the one that really gets them in trouble, uh, and of course, the White South. What they want again is American Southwest. So, so Adams is willing to allow for the possibility of, of slavery in the New Mexico territory, which again spans from Texas to California to today, New Mexico and Arizona. And and here too, he has he has the law on his side. He says, well, look, the Dred Scott decision, 1857, which is still standing, Tony's still alive at the time, um, bans Congress from banning slavery in, in the territories. And, and so, therefore, the position I'm taking is, in fact, consistent with U.S. Supreme Court. It's legalistic. It's constitutional. Um, he also points out the obvious, which at, at that moment, there's only a dozen slaves in New Mexico, and they're all, almost all domestic servants who belong to U.S. Army officers. Um, and so Adams says... But the Compromise of 1850, which opened up the Southwest under the guise of popular sovereignty, he said, you know, slaveholders have had a decade uh, to move slaves into the Southwest, and, and they haven't yet. And, and so, therefore, why make a big deal out of this if it will kind of cool off tempers in Virginia and keep them in the Union? Um, so, so, again, 
you know, like throughout his career, what you find him doing is taking these very legalistic, and he's got the law on his side, he's got Supreme Court on his side. Um, but of course, he's ultimately wrong, and, and on several grounds. Um, one, planters are not going to take expensive slave property into a territory only to watch it be manumitted when that state comes in as a free state and writes a free state constitution. So what, what the White South wants is a guarantee uh, that they will always have New Mexico, Arizona, South California is, is slave soil. Um, Adams also, of course, he's never been to the South. Uh, and so he conflates slavery and cotton. And he says, well, you know, it, it's arid out there. And so obviously, you know, uh, the, the western part of New Mexico, Arizona, um, is not going to be, you know, really great for cotton. But of course, when Jefferson Davis talks about the territories, he's talking about mining. Um, plus, you think from a guy who's a state that has canals, Adams would get the concept of, of irrigation. Um, I was born and raised. In Phoenix, I had one grandfather who grew cotton outside Phoenix, another who grew cotton in New Mexico, uh, Las Cruces. And, and so you can bring water um, you know, to the land. And so cotton can be grown in the Southwest. And, and again, there's a lot of things you can use slaves for. So, so that, that really causes a kind of a permanent rupture. Uh, Sumner comes for dinner. They, they literally have this, this sort of big shouting match. Um, and and, um, and that, that, that dissolves this longstanding partnership between Adams in Sumner and um, and his, his, his correspondence regarding Sumner becomes sort of ever meaner and and, and a bit sort of nastier and, and uh, Adams believes uh, that, that when Sumner is caned and, and almost dies, you know, beaten by Preston Brooks, that it's never quite the same afterwards. But but basically, he's just they don't agree on policy. So for Adams, that makes Sumner wrong, and and so um, that's that that for me was was kind of um, a position that was tough. To defend, and again, he chooses legalisms over humanity. Um, and and at one point, he says to Sumner, "Well, there's only 12, 12 slaves um, in in the Southwest." And Sumner says, "Adams, that's twelve slaves too many." And so, if you're one of those twelve slaves, it, it does matter to you if you've been you know, carried there and you your family is dissolved by by some U.S. Army officer from Virginia who's now in New Mexico. Um, you know that that matters. To you a great deal. So for Adams, it's never about the people. It's always about about the law. But of course, it is also then his support for for Seward that wins him um, the spot of becoming Lincoln's ambassador to to Great Britain. So it costs him one friendship, but but the friendship with Sumner, pardon me, with Seward, um, that opens up a whole new whole new door for him. What were the impulses for and reactions to Lincoln's and Seward's appointment of Charles Francis as a minister ambassador to Great Britain? In addition, how and why did Charles Francis attempt to preclude British support for the Confederacy and resolve the Trent Affair? And what were the envoys' subsequent diplomatic strategies? You can address to you can address a, a variety. Uh, you can address a variety of topics, um, including the uh, Alabama construction the diplomatic consequences of Antietam, the Emancipation Proclamation, et cetera. Sure. Um, and Adams was, was just a person. Um, he promised to do four years. He wound up doing seven uh, because every time he was ready to come home, a new crisis, like he was assassinated. Um, and in part because, again, he really knew Europe. He'd lived in London. Uh, he, he knew Europe in a way that, that most Americans did not. Um he also he also was very cool and balanced, and so I think in some ways what made him, you know, not a very good father. You know, the, the fact that he's sort of cold and distant made him a perfect diplomat. 
Um, and, and, and Seward, his boss in the State Department, um, had, had done a brief tour of Europe and a brief tour of England, but, but you know, didn't really know the people, didn't know the politics, and, and um, was always very inclined to write these sort of incendiary um, notes to, to, to Adams. He would say, you know, read this, read this verbatim. Uh, John Russell was the, the British Foreign Secretary. You know, read this verbatim to Russell. Um, and, and Adams would, would take a deep breath and write back and say, yeah, I'm going to change a word here or there. He, he would kind of soften the blow. So it was still, it was still tough, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of incendiary language uh, Seward was inclined to use. I mean, Seward, of course, had been in New York State politics for 30 years. Um, and and um, he made a lot of anti-English statements as a way to kind of appeal to Irish and Irish-American voters. Not with any success. They, they voted Democratic and he was a Whig. Uh, but there was, there was kind of a long history of, of tough things going back for decades that, that Adams, pardon me, Seward had said about the, about the British. Um, so, so Adams, it was softened that blow. Um, and also, of course, as a former congressman, he really understood British, British politics. Uh, he understood who was for the U.S., who was for the Confederacy, you know, what, what, what class, what region. Um, and he really knew how to use politicians who might be on his side. And, and so kind of the larger context here is that Lincoln's growing naval blockade of the American South was, was denying cotton uh, to British factories. Um, and before the war, half of all American cotton went to, to Britain, a quarter went to New England, a quarter went to, to France. Um, so these big factory towns like Manchester, they're just nothing but cotton textile factories, um, took a real hit. Um, and and um, workers were, were underemployed, workers were laid off. Um, and so, of course, the Southern hope is that if, if this pinched the, the British economy enough, and, and certainly the, the great cotton lords, the guys who owned the cotton factories, over a very pro-Confederacy. Um, uh, if, if the workers really turn against the U.S., uh, th- that would be kind of a decisive blow. Um, and so Adams immediately befriended um, two kind of old radicals, uh, Cobden and Bright, and, and who'd been involved in the anti-corn law movement, which was a, a British, essentially food tariff on, on cheap American wheat. Um, and, and so every time they would write uh, Bright or Cobden some kind of pro-U.S. Uh, statement, petition, he would formally meet with them. He would make sure it was published in British papers and American papers. We tried really hard to get, to get people who were presented or who had friends in the English working class kind of on his side. So he really knew how to use PR to that extent. And I think that's one thing uh, that um, I, I did not appreciate as I went into the project was, was how smart he was politically on the ground in Britain and not just, not just what he was doing relative to the prime minister, Palmerston, or the foreign secretary, John Russell. Um, so, so, you know, he knew when to soften the blow, but he also knew when to be tough. And he also understood the impact that, that events on the battlefield uh, were having on foreign policy. So after Antietam and after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, that certainly complicated uh, Palmerston's desire. And Palmerston was kind of leaning toward recognizing the Confederacy. Uh, that made it very difficult in the U.S. The hardcore abolitionists like Garrison were, were vocal, but pretty small in number. Um, Britain, of course, had gotten rid of slavery in its Caribbean empire, Jamaica, Grenada, Barbados in the 1830s. And so British anti-slavery forces were, were really pretty mainstream, connected and powerful. Um, and, and so every time, you know, the, the war went the U.S.'s way and, and not, not the Confederates' way, um, you know, then, then Adams would kind of renew certain um, agendas with Palmerston and Russell. And, and, and uh, Russell and Adams, by the way, actually sort of looked alike. They were about five foot three, baldish. Um, actually developed kind of a very, very good 
relationship. Um, but but finally, after, after Gettysburg, when of course it was pretty clear to anybody paying attention, the South now was not going to win. Um, and, and and Britain, by the way, was was just stunned because they're reading in the paper that, that Robert Lee has now invaded a second time the United States, and, and they're quite sure the next thing they read will be that Lee crushes Meade's army, goes goes waltzing in to Philadelphia or Washington, like has to agree to a separate peace. And then word arrives that, that Lee's been devastated at Gettysburg. And, and uh, Henry, who, of course, is there with his father, was just thought it was really amusing the way the London Times, which is very anti-U.S., um, just had a hard time publishing the truth because it, it just hurt them actually to say, you know, the U.S. had won this really big battle. But Adams knew that's when the time had come now um, to really get tough uh, on, on especially the, the, the building of Confederate rams, um, usually under kind of dummy corporations, but but in British dockyards. And, and so um, the Alabama, a bunch of had gotten away, but they're building more. Um, and so at that point, Russell had to consider what's the possibility if the North does win? Um, they're now very anti-English. There, of course, is Canada, just to the North, um, which is always kind of in play. And and when it looks like like two other ships being built are going to slip out of the docks. And, and Russell says at one point, Adams, it's being built by a private company. They've got, again, dummy corporations that, that are allegedly buying this, not, not the Confederates. Um, and Adams writes this, this kind of wonderfully succinct note to Russell. And he says, you realize your lordship, this means war. And that, that's all he has to say is if these ships escape, now down the road, um, there's going to be war. And if the war is over in the U.S., and the North winds. Um, and now what happens to British shipping? Can it be easy prey for American privateers? And so at that moment, um, Russell writes back and says, we're in agreement, clamps down, seizes the ships right before they could flee the docks. Um, and so so Adams knew when, when to sort of back off of Seward's rhetoric, but he also really knew when the time had come to just kind of lay it on the line. And, and I love that phrase, your lordship, you realize this means war. Why did Charles Francis Jr. enlist in the first Massachusetts uh, Calvary, despite his father's, uh, Charles Francis Sr.'s, concerns? Also, what were Charles Francis Jr.'s reactions to African Americans at Port Royal and Beaufort? And why did he refrain from becoming, as he put it, a quote-unquote N-word driver? And you know, in your response, you can d- discuss his relationship with the senior officers, uh, his violations of protocol, and then uh, his trials and travails at like Frederick. Um, well, but, but when Charles Francis Sr. left for Britain, um, and and John Quincy, uh, just one of the gentleman farmers, kind of he's in charge of the old house. Um, and Charles Francis took took Henry, the the the, the fourth child, third son, uh, with him as a secretary. In, in those days, um, American uh, ministers abroad had a very very small detail. So he has he has a one kind of permanent secretary who who came with the job, and he brings. Um, Henry with him as an unsalaried secretary to, to basically sort of copy all of his letters. Um, so Charles Francis, his namesake, Jr., is the child he has the most confidence in. Um, and, and I think correctly, you know, dad has come to see John Quincy II as being sort of an affable, ne'er-do-well guy. He just wants to plant trees. So so Charles Francis is going to be the person in charge of the family's investments, estates, stock. They've, they've got, you know, quite a bit. Um, and so his job is to stay home. Plus, Adamses don't fight. And if you go back to the revolution, Adamses are diplomats, they're statesmen, they're attorneys, they're law professors. They're, they're not They're not soldiers. Um, and of course, John Adams famously referred to George Washington as a lucky soldier, you know, a guy who kind of got all the attention. Um, 
So, so Charles Francis is is supposed to just kind of stay home for four years, but but of course, all of his Harvard pals um, immediately go up after Fort Sumter, enlist, and he actually goes down to the train um, to wave them goodbye, and they're all cheering and waving, and and they're you know they're the band of brothers all even together, and and there he is, um, and he's also bored by the mundane aspects of law, just you know the, the kind of stuff he's doing. Uh, writing her on on their tenants and and doing wills things like that he he just he's just bored out of his mind. Um, and of course the assumption is that the war will be short, the U.S. will win handily, and then that summer comes Bull Run. It's a major disaster. He has friends at Bull Run, um, and starts to think that it's it's actually dishonorable uh, for for an Adams not to serve. And and he writes to his mother to kind of get her ready for what's coming. And he says, you know, what we are the first family. Of the Republic, you know, going back, going back to John and Abigail, and and um, we've also been the first family of, of kind of anti-slavery legislators, going back to to you know Grandpa John Quincy um, in Congress and the, the Amistad case he's, he deals with, uh, and Charles Francis Jr. says, "Was mother this law family, all families, you know, not to be involved in, in the fight, and and not just just sitting here, you know, doing mundane things." And he said, "You know, history is being written. You know, the country's the country's story." he says, is being written. Um, and here I am, he puts it without a pen. Um, so he finally he finally just enlists in uh, the first uh, cavalry, Massachusetts. And, and again, in those days, the way it works is you enlist in a state regiment that is folded into the larger national army. But these are, it's a state regiment created by the governor, Donnie Andrew. Um, and and it's it's a fairly elite regiment. Um, uh, even being an, infra- infra- <laughs> an officer of the infantry is, is a fairly basic job, but, but cavalry um, requires a lot of training. It's much more expensive to put together a cavalry unit. Uh, it helps if you are a rich kid who can bring your own horse and your own gear, which Adams does. Um, so that telling his parents he enlists. And there it's his father that fall. This is the fall of 61. He says, well, you know, I've joined and um, I didn't like it. I didn't be horrified, um, but but lays out the case. Uh, we are, you know, the American family, it's just it's simply wrong for us having helped to kind of bring on this crisis, not to help resolve it. And he says, um, I've joined up and now you know. Um, and 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 when when in London, Charles Francis gets the letter, he's horrified. Um, and he responds by not responding. He just never writes back. Um, he does, though, say in his diary, um, I don't understand this. He says, you know, Adam says, we're, we're not soldiers and we've never been one. And why does he think he has to be one? And he said, the family's hopes are, are with him. And again, oldest sibling, Louisa, is a girl. Um, he'll be the next, basically, he'll be the next famous Adams, and he's going to die in, in, in battle. And he's risking his life, and I don't understand why. Um, and so finally, Henry writes back for his father and says, well, yeah, I support you. I don't really get it, but I'll support you. Uh, but just you know, try not to get shot. Try not to get, get killed. Um and Adams discovers he's actually a very good cavalryman. Um, being an Adams, and he's the one who says it, being a contrarian is, is an admirable thing. Um, he, he he doesn't really learn to love the guys in his unit, um, but but he likes them enough, and they they all kind of bond. And it turns out um, he's actually quite quite good at this. Um, uh, you look at most sources. You look at Wikipedia. It says that he, he fought at Gettysburg. Um, he's so far in the back at Gettysburg, and of course they're all trying to converge on on the battlefield. He's so far in the back, um, you can hear it way in the distance. You know the the battle rumbling. Um, he's been in in the the saddle for days, and so he actually sleeps through most of Gettysburg. He just gets off his horse, ties his horse to a branch, and and goes to sleep. Wakes up every now and then 
make sure the horse hasn't wandered off. Um, but he's involved just before that um, at the Battle of Aldi, which is in Loudoun County, Virginia, just south of D.C. Um, and, and it's on a kind of a strategic thoroughfare heading heading south. Um, and um, they're surprised by, by a Confederate cavalryman, and um, his unit is really cut up badly. And, and, and uh, he leads with, with great courage and presence of mind. He tells his men to dismount. They find a small wall. They're, they're shooting behind. People are getting blasted off their horses. And um, what's interesting, he writes to his brother after the John Quincy, uh, not to his father. He doesn't really want his father to know how, how close he came uh, to, to being shot. And, and again, the casualties for the U.S. side in, in Aldi is, is, is pretty, uh, pretty severe. Right, so John Quincy says, I have no idea why I'm still alive. You know, all my men were, were being shot. My, my wonderful unit has been decimated. And, um, and but basically, you know, write to dad and tell him I'm fine. The, the, not a big deal, kind of no. So every time he's in a battle like that, he writes to, to John Quincy or Louise and says, you know, write to dad and, and make, make sure that he understands I'm, I'm fine, I'm well. And it was kind of nothing to be concerned about. And in several several cases, he actually is, you know, really in the, in the front lines. So, so, you know, he did put his life on the line. Um, his big chance then comes, and he actually has some time off. He goes to Europe to see to see the family. And what's interesting is that when he's briefly in London on this, this kind of brief vacation, um, his father, of course, never gets around to saying, I'm proud of you for doing this. Um, always wants to introduce him as the captain. Here's my son, the captain. So, so, so kind of quietly, Charles Francis Sr. is very proud of Charles Francis Jr. But I just find it so sad that one person he can't bring himself to say, I'm proud of you, is, is those words to, to his son. So everyone else, he, he introduces him as the captain. Um, Adams then comes back um, and, and say this, decided to put together the, the first ever black cavalry unit, the, the, the fifth Massachusetts. Uh, there was some debate about what, what was the first U.S. black regiment. Was it the 54th with the South Carolina Volunteers? Uh, so I want to be very clear that, that, that they're going to have the first ever black cavalry unit um, and, and they offer Charles Francis Jr. the second spot. Um, and, and he thinks about it and finally does accept. And, and his concern um, <clears throat> is that he simply thinks he won't like the guys in his regiment. And, and he has been, the first cavalry actually was down in the South on the Carolina coast. And so he had his first um, kind of real experience in, in seeing African-Americans, black refugees, contraband, um, and, and the really disheartening thing about Charles Francis Adams uh, was his overt racism. Um, his father, uh, Charles Francis Sr., in the 40s would, would speak at Faneuil Hall, speak on the Boston stage uh, beside Frederick Douglass. Uh, and he would say in his diary, I, I spoke today on the same stage as, as the Negro Douglass, or I spoke on the same stage as, as the, the colored man, uh, Wells. But, but he never uses the N-word. So, so he, he was aware, dad was, uh, of race and pigmentation, but but never but never use the N word. Um, Charles Francis and John Quincy II use it like they have Tourette's. I, uh, Charles Francis simply cannot bring himself to use the word Negro or colored. It's just always the N word, uh, and it is clear from day one that he has no understanding of who these people are. Um, he says this one kind of very long and very confused letter to Henry when, when he was down on the Carolina coast. He says, you know, they're they're lazy and and they're thieves and they'll lie to you, um, but they seem to want to work. Um, so he, he doesn't understand the kind of the contradiction in, in that passage that that they're ready to work. They've always been working, but just for someone else, they want to work for themselves. Um, 
he says derogatory things. They have big feet. It goes on and on. I mean, you, you'd think you're reading uh, kind of a bad Mark Twain novel and not the grandson of, of John Quincy Adams. Uh, and that's basically his attitude when he's with Fifth Cavalry. And then finally, uh, Russell, his, his, his senior commander, um, is badly wounded in a place called Baylor's Farm. Um, so Charles Francis Jr. becomes becomes the colonel and, and does, in fact, lead his men into Richmond. They're the first mounted unit into Richmond when it falls in 65. And it's the one time in the letter he refers to his men as black. Like his moment of, of, of pride, they're marching into the city, and he writes to his father and says, again, how, how marvelous it is that an Adams has led a black regiment into Richmond. It's the one time he doesn't use the N-word or colored even uses the term black. Um, so so he never learns to like or understand the men in his regiment. And and, and by the way, one of his corporals um, is Charles Douglas, uh, the, the baby boy of, of the great black abolitionist. Uh, and as far as I can tell, Adams never knows that, that, that Fred Douglas's son, who his father had, had you know, spoken at Fangle Hall with, is one of his junior officers. He just has no interest in getting to know these guys and, and and this mustard out at the end of the war still complaining about about his Negroes and again he's not using that word he's using the the, you know, the n word um so so again this this was the problem of balance I had in the book I mean how do you write about somebody who does volunteer to lead black troops a pioneering regiment um but but just but just is utterly dismissive um and and openly racist when it comes to talking about the guys under his command. So you've addressed actually a number of topics. Let's skip ahead a little bit. And um, can you discuss a bit what Charles Francis Sr.'s and Charles Francis Jr.'s, is, uh, as well as maybe the British public's perspectives were on Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, the second election, the second inaugural, and the subsequent assassination, as well as their perspectives on the post-surrender black codes and extension of war powers? Um, well, you know, Charles Francis Sr., as I, I mentioned you know a moment ago, um, he, he never. He just never got um, the, the greatness of, of Lincoln. Um, and, and I should go back a step and say also that, that during the campaign of 1860, Charles Francis Jr. has just finished college and he's not sure kind of what the next step is. Um, and so family friend Seward says, well, come with me on a campaign. Um, and we're going to go west. And and, um, and so um, Seward actually meets Lincoln. This is, this is uh, you know, right after the convention in 60. And he's got uh, young Charles Francis with him. And, and Charles Francis says, you know, here's this sort of tall, you know, it's totally fit. You know, he shakes your hand with both of those kind of giant paws. I mean, and that, that's kind of the usual Adams, you know, view of Lincoln is this sort of kind of giant frontier yokel. Um, but 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 Henry does maybe because Henry is the wordsmith. You know, Henry of course goes on to be the novelist and, and the historian. Um, he's also from 1860 on is also writing editorials, usually anonymous for American newspapers. Um, and and so both both Charles Francis Jr. and Henry really get the Gettysburg Address. Um, and, and Charles Francis Jr. writes to his father and says, you know, you know, what about, you know, the, the prodigy from Illinois? You know, what that just an amazing, he sums up the war, American ideals in, in kind of three minutes or less. Um, Charles Francis Sr. still comes from the period where, like Edward Everett, his brother-in-law, you get up and, and a short speech is four hours. <laughs> you know, you just, you just kind of go on forever. And, and so nailing it, in, in three minutes, the Gettysburg Address, the second inaugural, which, of course, is one of the great speeches of the 19th century. Um, yeah, Charles Francis Sr. never really gets, but, but the boys do come to appreciate um, his greatness, both as, as a leader. I think in part because 
the Adams family assumption is that when it comes to foreign policy, that Seward is always calling the shots and Lincoln is just the hands-off kind of guy. Um, and that's in part because of, of the first meeting between Lincoln and, and Charles Francis Adams Sr. When, when Adams is named at, at, at Seward's uh, prodding to be minister, he travels down to meet Lincoln and kind of be debriefed. And, and Lincoln looks at him and says, well, you're Seward's guy and, and the two of you kind of handle it. And he goes off to like do something really minor. He's going to decide he's going to be the postmaster of Chicago. And, and so from day one, Charles Francis Sr. assumes that, that Lincoln is kind of the puppet and Seward's the, the guy really kind of orchestrating policy. Um, I think in part because Charles Francis Jr. is in the States. Um, he starts to realize that, in fact, especially when it comes to domestic policy, Lincoln is his own guy, that, 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 that he's, nobody's, he's nobody's puppet. Um, and, and again, I think as the wordsmith in the family, Henry realizes you know, how utterly brilliant uh, you know, Lincoln's, Lincoln's two celebrated speeches so they, they come to they come to understand it. Um, then, of course, you know the war is over, and Charles Francis Senior. He's done his four years. He wants to come home. Um, his father, in mind, of course, was abroad for eight years, but but um, ambassador Madison's ambassador to England for only two. So, so Charles Francis Senior's already been in England twice as long as his father. He's ready to come home. Then word arrives that, that Lincoln's been assassinated, and and that Seward has been badly badly cut up in assassination attempt. And they assume first he's going to die. Um, so, so if nothing else, Adams realizes that means he's not coming home anytime since we does agree to, to stay on in London. Um, and, and his fear, which is rather telling, his fear is that, that Seward, um, is, is so badly hurt. Uh, you know, he's attacked by an assassin too with a, with a knife, um, then the knife Lincoln shot, um, that he'll have to come back himself and, and, and serve in the state department. And he's horrified by that prospect. But interestingly, not because he thinks that Johnson's attempts to conciliate the White South are wrongheaded. Um, he simply thinks that, that Johnson is kind of a, a Southern lowlife and, and, and he doesn't want to sort of have to serve under. Um, but ironically, he doesn't really have any complaints about, about Johnson's policies. And again, here you see Adams being legalistic as opposed to concerned about, about human rights. Um, so from day one, you know, the, the White South, because in fact they are being treated very, very overly kindly by, by the new accidental president, Andrew Johnson, uh, began to pass black codes. And black codes are an attempt for the states to essentially get around the 13th Amendment um, and, and hold on to race and class prerogatives. Uh, so they, they give a handful of blacks a handful of rights. Um, they can vary now. But you have to get a labor contract in most states by, by January 1. If not, the state will get one for you. Um, some states make talking back to your employer. I mean, being uppity, a crime, you know, that kind of thing. So what they're trying to do is, is, is to circumvent 13th Amendment and hold on to slavery just under a different name. And, and, and Adams is kind of okay with that. Um, and especially John Quincy, uh, his son, the second, um, really, really thinks that the black voting rights are just kind of way too, over, not just too quick, but too extreme. Um, so all the Adamses, of course, are, are firmly anti-slavery. They're thrilled to see the amendment pass. They're thrilled to see slavery die. Um, what happens next? They're, they're pretty ambivalent about it, and certainly using federal power to ensure black voting rights. Uh, they're very critical of so the 14th Amendment. They don't like the 15th Amendment. They don't like, um, and, and to a certain extent, John Quincy, who doesn't come back from, from Europe until 68, it's um, kind of avoid all this. Although his correspondence makes it very clear when he's writing to Republicans, he's writing back and saying things like, I just don't agree with you on this. The, the, you're, you're mangling the Constitution. You're using way too much federal power. Um, but, but by that point, um, John Quincy II is running for office as a Democrat. Um, 
And, and of course, having an Adams run essentially as an anti-Black Democrat in Massachusetts gets a huge amount of national press and attention. And, and so it's quite clear um, the entire family is, is not going in the same direction as the Republican Party, um, and certainly not the, the direction that, that Charles Sumner is, is helping to lead it in in the Senate. So um, it's it's they are typical, I'll say this, of a lot of Republicans who are moderates, um, who, of course, want to sew the nation back together. They're opposed to secession. They are opposed to slavery. They want to see the 13th Amendment. Uh, but for them, it, it's done. The, the crusade is over. Slavery's dead. Um, bear in mind, of course, that, that um, voting rights was always a state prerogative. And so as late as 64, you know, Black Americans cannot vote in Lincoln's Illinois, um, in, in, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio. So to a certain extent, the Adams family collective position on Black voting rights um, is not that different from other kind of moderate Republicans, but they're Adamses. You know, they're the descendants of John Quincy, um, who, as he's literally dying in the House, is, is condemning the war with Mexico as a pro-slavery, unjust war. So, so it would be one thing if they were just some Republican moderate governor from Indiana who didn't want to go out on a limb for Black voting rights, but, but, but they are, again, America's first family, and they're America's first anti-slavery family. And this is, this is you know... Um, a rather depressing position for them to collectively take. So what's uh, Charles Francis Jr. doing? Um, can you discuss just really briefly his uh, his Railroad Commission ideas in the North American Review and American Law Review? Well, Charles, Charles Francis Jr. comes back from the war um, and, and um, isn't really sure kind of what, what the next act in his life is going to be. The one thing he does know, he's met a woman named Minnie Ogden uh, when he's on leave during the war. And, and he's just from day one, he's just mad for Minnie, um, in part because she's really pleasant. She's really kind. And, and he writes a letter to Henry, and he says, she's the exact opposite of me. Um, and, and so she kind of balanced me up because I'm, I'm just kind of unpleasant, and she's just really charming. And so with the kind of perfect pair, she also has a lot of money, which always matters to the Adams family. So the one thing he's agreed on is, is he's going to marry Minnie, and they get married as soon as he's, he's out to the Army. He's, he's, he's very very ill by the time he leaves the army. He's lost a lot of weight. He's not a big guy to start with. He's had malaria. Um, so, so, you know, getting his health back, he, he does a European tour, goes to see dad, introduce you know, Minnie to his parents. Um, then he comes back. He's not really sure what to do next. The one thing he knows he doesn't want to do is, is go back to the law. He just hated that. He has several offers for partnerships and law firms, and he just, he just turns them all down. Um, so he decides that railroads are the coming thing. And of course, he's not wrong on that. I mean, the, the years right after the war, the heyday, of American railroad construction. Um, but, but again, he takes a really interesting position, which is kind of a typical Adams position. I mean, he does believe in regulation. And so he starts writing essays and, and log reviews in, in, in the Atlantic Magazine um, and, and kind of very sort of visible places, um, hoping that they will then essentially kind of turn into a position uh, with the railroads or with, with uh, brand new uh, railroad commissions, you know, kind of corporate commissions on the state level. Uh, so he does believe in, in regulation, um, which kind of puts him at odds with, with sort of the grant wing of the party, which is just this shovel cash at the railroads. Um, but also because, again, for an Adams, it, it's the best men, people like himself, who should be sort of running post-war America and not this, this sort of nouveau riche industrialists and, and financiers. Um, so, so, again, he does believe in regulation, but merely so people like himself can basically be in charge. Um, and it does get him a position uh, with, with a railroad commission uh, in, in um, Massachusetts and, and finally rises to be the CEO, the president of Union Pacific, which he does for about a decade. 
until he's finally forced out in 1890 uh, by, by the financier Jay Gould. So ironically, he's kind of forced out by one of these sort of awful nouveau riche people he's been writing against, you know, decades who are not the, the Harvard types, not the best men. But, but he becomes essentially kind of a robber baron, although a, a rather you know, genteel one. Uh, but there's the painting of him late in life, like any other robber baron wearing an you know, elegant tuxedo, holding his cigar, um, cashing his check. And he's uh, very dismissive of, of um, labor unions, uh, which he derides as being, it calls them Celtic, so the you know, Irish in the East or, or you know, Asian in the West. Um, and, and his racism never abates. It just it now kind of spreads. So it, I think a lot of his, his racism is based as much on class as his race, because he says the same kinds of things about, about Irish workers, Irish voters, um, that he does about black voters in the South or about, about Asian workers um, in the far West. So, so he does, he does cash in. And again, for me, that's, that's kind of part of the story of the family decline. It goes from being one of service to nation, service to, to one's fellows, to be, um, we can make a lot of money at this. And, and that, that's kind of a Gilded Age norm, I guess. Um, but again, it'd be, I think, a bit finer had he, had he opted for a different kind of life after the war. You know, other, other officers go into politics and he went into business. Can you discuss a bit? Can you discuss a bit Charles Francis Sr. and the rise of the liberal Republicans, as well as the Adams family support for Samuel Tilden and the 1876 Democrats, and then uh, finally uh, Henry's courtship and marriage to Clover Hopper, as well as his uh, love for Lizzie Sherman? <laughs> a lot of good stories there. Um, so Charles Francis Sr., of course, comes back in 1868, and he comes back just in time for, for Grant to be elected. And, and, and once again, his concern is that he'll be asked to be Secretary of State. And on one hand, he, he badly wants that because 19th century, the State Department, not the Vice Presidency, is the stepping stone to the Oval Office. Uh, so if he does two, two terms as Secretary of State, then, then he's kind of up next in the Republican Party. And, and, and actually, they have this kind of very funny meeting. Grant comes to New England, and there's a big public dinner in Boston. Uh, they're both invited to, and, and the, the press assumption is that they're going to kind of check each other out, maybe offer be forthcoming. Um, and, and Adams and Grant spend most of the dinner kind of staring at each other across the room. Um, and of course, Adams would have been a terrific choice for the State Department. Um, but but Grant, as a classic outsider, you know, kind of like Eisenhower in the 20th century, uh, wants to be his own guy. And so to choose the person who now with, with Seward out of politics and Lincoln dead is kind of Mr. Republican, um, would, would be would be an indication that he's not really kind of in charge of his own cabinet. So, so Adams does not get the spot. And he says to his diary, well, I'm really thrilled. It's not really clear to me how thrilled he is to be sort of ignored by Grant. Uh, he clearly thinks, and Henry also thinks, that Grant is just is just a moron. I mean, they have, they have a really low opinion of Grant. Uh, so Adams goes back in, into sort of his private life. Um, but then the, the first ship that did escape from British clutches uh, is called the Alabama, uh, which did a huge amount of damage to, to U.S. shipping during the war. Um, and so the Grant administration is essentially suing uh, the British for damages. Um, and so they do tap Adams to go to Geneva, Switzerland, uh, to be part of this commission to try to get damages. And it's essentially kind of an international court tribune, and, and, and Adams is just you know, in, his, in his element at this. Um, and he was hoping to get a judgment on, on the part of the U.S., um, get kind of a small sum, sort of teach the British a lesson, you know, don't do this, don't do this again. They're hoping they'll get maybe you know, one million, two million, and, and the tribunal fines for the U.S. 
um, and awards the U.S. $15 million in, in British pound sterling. It's just a spectacular success. So coming hard on the heels of being the great minister to, to Britain, Adams is now once again famous in all the news for, for being the guy who gets this spectacular judgment against the British and brings all this this cash home. Um, and so, of course, by now it's 1872. So once more, the question is kind of what will he do next in an election year? Um, and by this point, a lot of reformers, um, at least white reformers, have become very unhappy with, with Grant's um, sort of turning a blind eye to the corruption in Congress in his own cabinet. Grant himself was not a corrupt person, but he actually had people in his cabinet who were taking bribes. And, and that was also kind of the mood of Washington at the time. Um, so, so for a lot of white reformers, they want to get somebody like Adams, you know, again, the best man, um, back into position. I call them those liberal Republicans, meaning reform-minded Republicans. Uh, but here, too, there's a racial divide. Um, by 72, Grant was sort of backing off of, of kind of the, the peaks of, of clamping down on the white South. They, they, they passed a law called the Klan Act, uh, you know, literally going after Klan members using federal federal marshals. Um, and, and so black Republicans, um, like, like, like Frederick Douglass, who now is a firmly in the Republican camp, um, they're still on Grant's side because Grant figures the one guy occasionally willing to kind of slap down white Southern violence. And, and so black Republicans are all for a second term for Grant. Uh, white reformers, you know, kind of not so much, but they're also divided. Uh, one of Grant's great critics is Charles Sumner. But of course, Sumner still has not achieved any kind of detente with Adams. And so the, so the, 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 the kind of coalition is divided. But here, too, all Adams has to do is to say, I like the nomination. Uh, because they meet in a separate Republican uh, liberal convention. Um, and, and in Washington, Charles Francis Jr. and Henry are pushing really hard for, for debt. Um, but again, once more, and as he's coming back from Geneva, you know, the press is just, just you know, lauding his accomplishments. All he has to do, again, is simply say, you know, I'm in and, and he won't. They have to come to him hand in hand, you know, ask him to run. Um, he also thinks probably Grant is unbeatable in 72. And, and, and probably he's right. Um, that said, had Grant, had Grant been challenged by Adams uh, as a, from the liberal progressive reform view um, and then been reelected, Adams would have been then probably up for 76. But Adams also knew what, what no one else knew is that he was starting to suffer from memory loss, uh, kind of early hints of, of dementia, and, and was quite concerned that by 1876 he would not be the man he'd been in, in 1866. Um, so, so kind of once more, the the the, the prize is lost. Um, all the press is speculating: Will he become the third President Adams? Um, and of course, he doesn't. Um, and, and by not by not running in seventy two, he then also takes the pressure off off the fourth generation. Um, I mean, the worst case scenario for for John Quincy the second, Charles Francis Jr., Henry is that if Dad does become the third President Adams, they're up next. You know, they're just they're just the Kennedys, and they can't get away from it. Um, so the fact that Charles Francis never gets the brass ring and never becomes the third president Adams then takes the pressure off uh, of those kids who do not want to be in politics. Henry does. Charles Francis, uh, Don Quincy II, uh, they just they just don't. What about Henry's courtship and marriage to Clover Hopper and uh, and uh, Lizzie Sherman, as well as this rise of the historian and, and novelist? Um, so after, after the war, Henry moves to Washington. Um, I think in part to kind of escape the sort of, the sort of family control of, of Massachusetts. Um, he starts writing essays, editorials. Uh, he, he buys a house, you know, literally adjacent to the White House, 
Um, I think it's pretty clear what he's hoping is, in the same way that Charles Francis Jr. is his brothers, um, editorials about railroads are going to kind of get him into that that line of work. Um, his hope is that by being the, the sort of tough-minded voice of reform in these editorials will then get attention. There is in Washington, the seat of power, um, and, and will probably become you know, the next Senator Adams or Congressman Adams. And, and that, that doesn't happen, again, in part because he's not willing to kind of lobby for it. When he does have invitations to the White House, it makes it very clear that he regards these people, you know, Garfield, Arthur is, is less than he is. You know, they didn't attend Harvard. They're not as bright as he is. Um, so instead he gets married. Uh, he marries a woman named, named Marion uh, Hooper, uh, goes by the nickname of Clover, which is a childhood nickname. Uh, they get married in 1872, um, and, and and rather to the family's surprise. Um, now they get married also when his parents are over there in Switzerland at the Geneva arbitration. So so um, of his family, only only Charles Francis uh, is actually there. Um, and, and she's already, she's in her late 20s, which today would be nothing at the time. She's already kind of creeping up on spinsterhood. Um, and what I find interesting about that marriage is in the same way that Charles Francis Jr., wants to marry Minnie as kind of a balance. Um, Henry wants to marry himself. And, and, and Clover is very much like Henry. Um, kind of eccentric, um, a little shy, uh, very artistic. Um, Charles doesn't like her at all. Um, his brother um, derides the marriage as, as being no kind of affair. Um, and, and, and Henry is, is not a romantic um, again, they start dating. He decides very early on that they're going to get married. and and But he's not introduced Clover to most of his friends. So he finally writes to one friend and says, this kind of really bizarre letter, and says, well, I'm going to marry her, and, and I, I think you'll like her. Um, she's not plain, but she's not beautiful. And, and he goes down, here's a list of flaws. She kind of talks too much, Greek and Latin, a little bit on the weak side. Um, her clothing is a little strange. He says to his friend, though, we can fix that. Um so, so even for an Adams, um, Henry makes for for kind of a rotten lover. It's just kind of a letter that would that would have you sort of running away. Um, and and Clover apparently is not a great beauty, uh, but we don't actually really know what she looks like because she's so concerned about her appearance. Probably because Henry says things like that to her. Um, it's hard to get a photograph of her looking straight on at the camera. And the one I have in in the book, she has a, this sort of big kind of floppy hat. She's holding a dog looking down. Well, you see her on a horse from a hundred feet away. Um, so in a day when, when elegant women, moneyed women have, have, have wonderful paintings done, she does nothing like that. Um, and they seem to have this, this kind of affectionate marriage. Uh, they travel throughout Europe and, and at one odd moment, Charles Francis actually is in Europe on business. Um, and he calls on them and he writes home to, to his brother, John Quincy and says, you know, I really just don't like her at all. She's just very odd. And then Henry's already a little odd. She makes him kind of even odder. So the family never gets behind her. Uh, and she finally does meet the folks, uh, Charles Francis Sr. And, and Abby. They don't like her at all. And there's actually kind of a funny and a sad way photograph of the book that we thought about using briefly as the cover. Um, and they're at the old house in Quincy, and, and, and the door's open behind them. They're on the side of the door, sitting on the front porch. And, and the door's open, so it's, it's, it would be kind of welcoming. It's dark inside. And they're both, they're both glaring. And she, and she took the photograph standing on the ground below, so they're, they're sort of glaring down at her, which is probably the way they almost always kind of looked at, at, at poor Clover. So living in Washington, and there they're building this house, um, um, and then he comes friends with with this young woman, um, uh, who uh, is the niece of the Joe Sherman. Uh, she's Elizabeth Sherman Cameron. Uh, she's married to a senator who's much older than, than 
she is apparently not a very happy relationship and, and, and Henry and all of his friends don't, don't like the husband. Um, but she's gorgeous. Um, and, and, and the, the painting she has done of herself, she's, she's beautiful. They all mentioned when she walks into the party, everyone just turns. She's also just the life of the party. She's, she's gregarious. She's witty. She's charming. Um, and, and Clover has to know that Henry is really smitten. Uh, goes by Lizzie with Lizzie. Um, and, and tries to kind of befriend Lizzie. Um, and, so, and so kind of the final moment comes. Clover is, is a great photographer. That's sort of her hobby. Takes these amazing shots. And, and she takes one of, of George Bancroft, the American historian. Really perfect shot, black and white, of course. He's holding a cigar, and, the, and this book's sort of wafting up over one shoulder, and he's got a book in hand. So the Atlantic Magazine is going to do a piece on Bancroft, who, Bancroft who's sort of a rival historian for, for uh, Henry. Um, and they want to buy this photograph and, and run it in the magazine. And, and Henry says to Clover, um, you know, we're Adamses. You know, we, we, don't, we don't sell things. It's fine if you want to have um, a hobby and take pictures, but actually selling them to a magazine is kind of beneath what we do. Um, and then one Sunday he breaks a tooth and he goes to the dentist. And, and while he's gone, she drinks photography fluid. Um, probably took about 45 minutes to die. She was 42 years old, um, and she left behind um, sort of a bracelet, and, and, and she left it to Lizzie. Um, so that there's all kinds of things in, in that, that sort of sad story that, that, that uh, Dr. Freud probably would have, uh, would have liked. And so Henry comes home from the dentist, and there she is, dead, lying on the floor. So when Henry wrote his memoirs, which is an unusual kind of autobiography, The Education of Henry Adams, uh, he never once mentions that he was married or had a wife or that she committed suicide she he just it doesn't talk about her really ever after that just kind of banishes her memory from from his life so um a really sad and and uh and an awful story how and why did the panic of 1893 and the deaths of children contribute to the untimely demise of john quincy jr as well as exacerbate henry's anti-semitism and his growing disdain for brooks also um if you can uh, please provide examples of Charles Francis Jr.'s public ideology of racialized anti-imperialism abroad and his embrace of the Confederate lost cause in defense of Robert E. Lee. Um, the, the, last, the last decade of the fourth generation is, uh, is a fairly depressing story. Um, John Quincy II keeps running for local office. Um, the, the governor, state house, state senate, always has a Democrat, always, always loses in what then was a firmly Republican state. Um, and he also lost two children within days of each other back in 1876, uh, John Quincy III um, and Francis, known as Fanny. And, and um, it, it never really was the same after that. Uh, not just, he was kind of a broken person, and, and, uh, and that's, that's, you know, in itself a sad and understandable story. He lived on until 1894, but he was just never quite the same after that and, and, and drank heavily. Um, uh, Charles Francis, after being forced out of the road in 1890, uh, developed this kind of very strange fondness for things Confederate. Um, he began to write essays and give speeches on, on Robert Lee. He became an advocate of, of having a Lee statue in Washington, D.C. And you know, here we are today debating the fate of Confederate statues across the South. He's talking now about, about having a Lee statue in Washington, D.C. Um, and it starts giving this, this kind of standard talk, which he has published as, as, a, as a pamphlet. Uh, gives it William College, um, uh, gives it in Chicago as well, I mean, not, not just in the South. He becomes very, very popular in the South. And, and the, the, the president of William Mary at that point is, is uh, a descendant of John Tyler. It uh, famously says, if this Adams would run again, we'd be thrilled to have here in Virginia a third Adams in the White House. 
he meets he meets Lee's uh, elderly, never married daughter, um, who, who just praises his speech. And 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 again, you know, it's, it's he's not the only Republican to turn against Reconstruction reforms to think that the Congress went too far. Um, but but it's one thing, you know, to criticize as again many moderates did, um, Congress. And using the powers of the Constitution, clamping down on the White South, um, you know, praising Robert Lee was, was was kind of a bit over the top, and and even Henry never really got that. And even as Henry remained friends with Rooney Lee after the war, Henry always regarded basically all the Lees as as being second rate men. And and so Henry writes to, to Charles Francis and says, I, I don't understand your your fondness for these guys, um, but 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 he's lies, um all across the South, giving this kind of standard speech. And, and that's kind of his retirement years. Um, and again, openly racist. It, one of the strangest letters he writes to Henry when he's invited back to speak in Virginia. And he says, well, here I am back in Virginia. He has a friends, Negro. And of course, that's not the word he's using. Like, like he's just sort of dropping it in like a comma. Um, and he also though, becomes an anti-imperialist. But but this is, of course, the decade of the Spanish-American War in the Philippines. Um, but, but for racist reasons. So you've got reformers like Twain, Arguing that, that that holding on to the Philippines as a colony is fundamentally anti-American, um, Adams is part, part of that group that argues the danger of, of imperialism is that it brings too many people who are, are dark-skinned um, into into the republic. So late in life, he travels to Cuba. Um, he's, he's just quite convinced that that people who are not white are simply capable of self-government, and, and so his concern is that you know if the U.S. doesn't just throw the Spanish out, but then does annex Cuba or annexes the Philippines, then are you bringing in Filipino senators down the road who would be Catholic and darker skinned? So, so he is, he is anti-imperial, but, but for kind of very, very conservative racialist kind of view. Um, the, the youngest brother who I talk about a little bit in the book, uh, not, not so much yet today, uh, is, is Peter Brooks, uh, who's far and away the baby of the family. And, and Peter decides he's going to be also the historian of the family. And of course, by this point, Henry's become a very famous novelist and very famous historian. And I'll give Henry this. I mean, Henry almost sort of really invents the craft of, of writing American history in the late 19th century. Um, at a time when, when history is very impressionistic, uh, Henry is, is a go-to-the-archives kind of guy. He goes, he goes to Europe to look at to Spanish, French, British archives, you know, heavily documented. Um, and by comparison, um, um, Preston um, <coughs> writes... He's kind of a pioneer in, in looking at, at how the economy changes the course of human history. Um, but but data doesn't seem to matter to him very much. And so his books get terrible reviews because they're just the things that are spectacularly wrong. The Huns invading Europe is off by hundreds of years. Um, and at one point, at one point, all the boys are sort of estranged from each other. Uh, Charles doesn't like Henry. Henry doesn't like Brooks. Um, and, and Brooks says to Henry, you know, why are you so fetishizing data? I mean, that, that's not really the point behind history. Um, and so they become sort of very oddly competitive in their old age. And, and at one point, um, uh, Brooks takes it into his head to, to, to write a biography of, of their grandfather, John Quincy. And he sends it to Henry, asking for his name. Uh, back about 70 legal pages explaining why it's bad. But mostly he says it's because it's too nice to John Quincy. And he says, you know, actually he was terrifying as a grandfather. And I just, I just think he was such a mean-spirited person, even though he was a good anti-slavery congressman. Um, and, and so, and so, Brooks is so horrified by older brother's Henry's views of his, his scholarship, he, he never publishes it. Um, then Charles Francis, who never liked his father, then writes the first ever biography of Charles Francis Senior, 
but it's kind of a classic life and times. It's, not, it's the public man, not the private man, because again, later in life, Charles Francis is still telling people he just didn't like his father. So, so they, they all end up simply estranged from each other, which is, which is um, really quite, really quite sad. Uh, Charles Francis and John Quincy are close, but that's, that's kind of, that's kind of it for the family. So what was the public's and the Adams family's receptions of the 1907 education of Henry Adams? And what were the ultimate fates of the three brothers? Well, of course, of course, when, when today education of is remembered as, as a great work of fascinating autobiography. I mean, it, it's, it's a tra- untraditional work in that Henry refers to himself in the third person. Um, so he'll say the boy Henry as opposed to I, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it was only published for a handful of friends. So, so he had like a hundred copies printed set to friends. Um, so of course, after he dies, then, then it wins the Pulitzer Prize for autobiography, but in for history, but, but at the time it's simply being circulated among a few friends. Um, and, and the way the brothers receive it tells you a lot about, about them. So if you, I, I had to go back and I had not read it actually since college, I had to go back and reread it. Um, there's kind of two parts to it. One simply is a pretty straightforward autobiography of here's what life was like as a child, here what was happening when I was with dad in England. And the second part is, is much more philosophical. Um, and, and so Charles Jr. wrote and said, well, you know, I'd love the first part. And, and, and we had the same kind of memories. We both loved Quincy, both hated the house on Beacon Hill. Um, I think you were kind of too nice, dad, and too hard on mom. But, but otherwise, you know, Charles liked the first part. Um, Brooks went back and said, you know, the first part just bored me out of my mind. The second part, the, the larger philosophical part, the, the, the kind of larger reflections on, on the world as it is, that's the part that, that Brooks liked more. Um, Privately, Charles said that, that, that it was um, very silly, quote unquote, very silly as a book. Um, and then about the same time, wrote his autobiography, uh, which he simply mailed to the Mass Historical and said, well, here it is. Take it or not. I don't really care. Um, so they did publish it with an introduction by Henry Cabot Lodge. So, so they're, they're always you know, that kind of competition. So, so if, if Henry's going to do a book about his life, then Charles is going to do one too. Uh, but it'll be different. It'll be more conventional, less kind of philosophical. Um, so, so, you know, even late in life, they're still, they're still kind of trying to elbow each other aside. Um, uh, Brooks does appreciate the the mastery of Henry's, Henry's work. Henry writes eight volumes on history of uh, Jefferson and Madison still in print, incidentally. Um, I'm still just an amazing, amazing work of scholarship. Um, and, and for an Adams, um, very, very balanced when it comes to kind of the, the old rivalry between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Um, so, so they all kind of appreciate that. Um, uh, they mostly live on into the 20th century. Uh, John Quincy II doesn't. He dies in 1894. And again, he's been, he's been essentially broken since the death of his, his young children. Um, Charles lives on until 1915, um, still, still, still in the virtues of, uh, of the Confederacy. Um, uh, <clears throat> he dies uh, right before Henry. And Henry writes a letter. He's still friendly with Lizzie. And Henry writes to Lizzie and says, well, Charles and I were in a race for the grave and, and Charles won. Um, so Henry lived until 1918. Um, there was also, by the way, a boy, um, a younger sibling named Arthur Adams, who, who died at the, at the age of five back in 1846. So, so slightly younger than Henry, but, but died as a child. Um, and then Mary Gardner, uh, who is the younger sister, um, it was actually kind of the one nice person in the fourth generation. Um, and, and of course, mom, Abby, her plan for Mary is that Mary will be the lifetime companion. Um, and always be there to care for her late in life. And, and you know, that's kind of traditional for that period and that, that kind of class status. You always have like the one daughter who stays behind to kind of help you in your old age. Um, and actually very late in life, um, 
Mary falls in love with, with a kinsman, um, a doctor named Quincy, and becomes Mary Gardner Adams Quincy. And, and um, Charles Francis Sr. is thrilled to give her away. And, and Abby is, is just very, very upset that her daughter is leaving and moving, by the way, like five miles down the road, not, not very far. Um, Brooks is the last to go, but of course, he's the youngest. He makes it until 1927. Um, still writing these kind of very sad and, and odd pieces. Um, I would not, I would not call him a fascist, but but of course, Mussolini comes to power in twenty two, and, and and Brooks does say some rather kind things toward toward the kind of trend to the right um, in Europe. Um, he also marries late in life and and um, becomes kind of a physical wreck. Can't can't keep a nurse, um, and probably because he drinks too much and keeps a, a loaded pistol on a side table, so he terrifies the nurses. They're always they're always quitting. So he finally he finally passes away. But he says something right before he dies that I found. Amazing. He's, he's reflecting on, on his family's decline. And, and he, he basically pegs John Quincy I as being um, the source of, of, of this kind of discontent. And he says that, that um, um, of this growth in pessimism, my grandfather was the main figure. But then he says, not Henry or me, we are appendages only. And he says, no one in this fourth generation will ever be remembered. And, and to a certain extent, he's, he's not that wrong, apart from Henry, who still remains viable in, in literary studies and, and uh, American studies and, and history. Um, but look, we, we're appendages only, uh, these, these kind of tattered remnants of a one great family. So, so, so Brooks recognizes, yeah, the family is, is not close to being what it was in earlier generations, but, but they all blame the grandfather, which is interesting, because he was just, they think... Not very nice. It is interesting. So what's next for you? Are you working on any new projects? Are you going on vacation? <laughs> a little <laughs> bit of both. But again, to the extent that, that all of my books lead to the next. I mean, part because I found the Adamses to be just just so unpleasant. Um, a guy has popped up in several of my books. Uh, is Thomas Wentworth Higginson. He always has kind of cameos, and, and, and he's also a 19th century feminist. So any any book on Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, you know, there, there he is. I mean, he also leads black troops um, in battle. He's a, he's a Boston Brahmin. And um, uh, the, the first South Carolina infantry is a contraband unit, and, and he becomes the second colonel of that operation. Um, is a reformer, um, feminist. He's a, a minister in, in Massachusetts out near Worcester. Um, one, one quick story, when, when Lucy Stone, the feminist, gets married, uh, she refuses to have the term obey as part of the, the wedding vow. Um, and she can't find a minister anywhere in Boston who will leave the word out. And so she's heard about this guy, Higginson, out there in Worcester and writes him and says, will you come marry me and, and, and leave that word out? It's like, I'm on the train. So if there's a cause, he's in. Um, he's, he's out there with Kansas, Kansas with John Brown. Um, he's one of the secret six. So he's a financial benefactor of Brown. Um Lifelong health uh, aficionado. Uh, late in life, he still has chin-up bars and parallel bars and lifting lifting weights. He's a very big guy, about 6'2", 6'3". Um, writes 47 books. Um, he, he makes a lot of money with a child's history of the U.S., um, which after his death in 1911, the Daughters of the Confederacy worked very hard on banning because, because it's, anti, <laughs> it's anti-slavery, anti-Southern. Um, so so that, that that's, yeah, that's my next project is is a book on on higginson there's two books going back to the 60s um not great neither one have footnotes um and i find him just absolutely fascinating so that's my next that's my next project well we hope you uh, remember new books in history for that project i said i'm thrilled to be on i really appreciate it 
So the book is Heirs of an Otter Name, The Decline of the Adams Family and the Rise of Modern America, published earlier this year by Basic Books. Um, on behalf of Professor Edgerton, as well as New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network, this is Ryan Tripp signing off. Please tune in next time.